Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. We're thrilled to be here today. I'm, I'm, uh, we're actually we're thrilled for visiting Ronnie Baptist Church. We, we arrived here in June, PCS from Travis Air Force Base most recently. And uh, we live right over here in Old Farm. And so this was like right here. So we decided to come and visit back in June. And we walked in and the music was amazing. And the people were, were great. And then the pastor started preaching. And Pastor Chris, he, he in that sermon, he spoke about training for the Pikes Peak Marathon. And my kids, my kids were like, oh no, we're, st- we're stuck. Because <laughs> I'm a trail runner and I'd already signed up for the Pikes Peak Marathon. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. And so we've been a part of the church uh, ever since. We've been thrilled. We actually sit back there normally. And uh, a couple of my kids, I want to point them out. They're right there. The two girls right there. Yeah, right there. They're chickens because the rest of us moved up here to the front. And they, they weren't willing to do it. They just, they, anyway, so give them a hard time, would you? Um, we're thrilled. I got six kids, actually. My, my six, my eldest is in uh, San Francisco. She's in art school, so she's not, uh, not here with us here today, but you'll get to see her in the summers. Um, and we've just been thrilled to be a part of the church, be a, be a part of this community, and, uh, and growing and learning. It's been, it's been wonderful. So thank you for welcoming us into this community, and I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to open the Word of God with you today. I do want to say one thing, like whenever we do this Veterans Day thing, they always point out the guys wearing the uniform or the gals wearing the uniform, um, and, uh, and, and, and don't forget about the families. Uh, they, they, I tell you, you know, they're, they're my heroes, and Jenny, uh, you, you know it, you're my hero. My kids, you're, you're my heroes, uh, but I, I was just kind of tallying it up, and over the last 11 years, it's, it's almost two years that we've been apart. Um, and uh, I'm so glad to be with you today. I just got back from TDY yesterday, so now I'm all teary. Anyway, um, so I, I'm just, just don't forget the families. Uh, they, they, pay, they pay the price for, for some of that. Um, let's go ahead and just dive right into the Word of God this morning. Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. And let's stand out of honor of the reading of God's Word. Esther chapter 4. I'm going to read begin, beginning in verse number 9 and go down through verse 14. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to, Mor- to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if a man or a woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love. We thank you for your word, and I ask that right now as we enter into this section of worship, as we hear a word from you, that you would remove from our hearts and minds anything which would distract us from doing so. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The setting. Life in the lap of luxury beyond comprehension. The people... A king with unparalleled power and his queen, Vashti. The situation, a dispute that turned into a national crisis. 
Now, we could read all sorts of things into the circumstance. The fact is, we really don't know why, but Vashti refused to come into the men's banquet hall, refused to leave her own women's banquet over which she was presiding when her drunken husband called for her. And he, this all-powerful king, became very, very angry. So angry that he deposed her as queen under the advice of his lawyers. Enter Hadassah, a young girl raised by her cousin Mordecai, who took her in after being orphaned. Interestingly, the name Hadassah means myrtle, myrtle tree, often equated in Jewish thought with the term righteousness. Apparently, her character matched her name. And Mordecai loved her and viewed her as his own daughter. So he was undoubtedly distressed, to say the least, when a royal decree separated them. You see, Ahasuerus was ready to replace Vashti. Now, when there are no limits or restraints, powerful people do awful things. At the advice of the king's counselors, he swept the city of all the beautiful unmarried girls and placed them in his harem. Now, if you're a parent, I want you to feel for a moment what that must have been like. I'll tell you, there's a rage in my own heart at the thought of such a thing. Now, I know what I would want to do if a state official <laughs> knocked on my door and told me to give them my daughters so that the king could try them out. I'll tell you, my first reaction would most decidedly not be a Christian one. I'm just saying. Now, there's no possible justification for this sort of a behavior on the part of a sovereign. Still, it may help somewhat to know that there were much worse fates for daughters in that era than living in perfect security amidst wealth and prosperity with no prospect of hunger and want. So not every family would have objected to this arrangement. Not that an objection would have even mattered when it's coming from the mouth of a dictator. It would be obedience or death. Mordecai and Hadassah, soon, known to be, soon to be known as Esther, Persian for star if you're wondering, obeyed the command. But not before Mordecai gave Esther some advice. She told he told her not to reveal her national identity, to hide her heritage. Now, isn't racism just sickening? This is not a new problem. It, it's, it's so easy to lie to oneself, is it not? To, to think, my way is best. And, and that seems so innocent, because um, so, frankly, sometimes it is, right? My way is best. But my way is best is just a step, a step away from our way is best. And our ways are best is just a step away from they and them and those people. Listen, when you hear yourself saying they, them, and those people, you're on dangerous grounds. You're no longer seeing individuals for whom Christ died. You're predefining and pre-deciding and pre-judging. Let me be clear, there are two classes of people. Those who have received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, 
and those who haven't. But hear me clearly, there is only one sort of human. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Esther lived in a world marred by sin, just like we do. You don't have to look hard into the story of Esther to see a cry for justice against the intolerant who would wipe out whole swaths of humanity and describe them as less than for whatever reason. Esther and Mordecai did not feel free to reveal their national identity for fear of mistreatment. So he told her, keep your nationality secret. Wow. It's something, isn't it? This, this undercurrent, this message in the book of Esther, if you're familiar with the story, you already know how it ends. Israelites throughout the empire were given a measure of autonomy and the right of self-defense within the land of Persia. This act of formal secular governmental recognition and rights instituted the Jewish Holy Day of Purim, still celebrated by the Jews each March. An ancient genocide averted. That's a reason to celebrate, is it not? And how sad that what the Jewish people avoided in ancient Persia, they did not avoid in this last century with the rise of the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler. It wasn't for lack of Esther's. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many others worked tirelessly within the system to oppose horrendous policies of evil as much as they could. You see, there were always Esthers, Bonhoeffers, and MOKs ready to insert themselves into systems of power and speak what needs to be spoken and do what needs to be done. But just because they're there doesn't mean that they're listened to or that they'll be successful. That's one thing you'll need to remember as you read the book of Esther. We know the rest of the story. Esther and her father-like cousin had no idea what story was being written. They're slaves of an empire separated from their land, their customs, and their people. Mordecai's grandfather was taken into captivity with Jeconiah. And while Nehemiah returned to Judah with many, he didn't return with all. Mordecai's family was of the number that stayed behind in captivity, perhaps circumstantially, circumstantially, I can talk, perhaps willfully. Mordecai has become a man of importance in the government by now. And Esther is waiting her fate in the royal harem. You can read it in Esther Esther chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. If Things on her first visit to Ahasuerus, better known to Xerxes, the history of Xerxes, and Xerxes is a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus. If things don't go well on her first visit, she'll be relegated to the tier two harem where she'll never meet the king again unless he remembered her name and called for her, which would be highly, highly unlikely. We see Mordecai visiting the gate of the harem every day. He he had access to do so in his official capacity, checking on his cousin slash daughter. The tension must have been real. Would she be used as a rag and then tossed in the bin? I can only imagine that both Mordecai and Esther must have been shocked at what actually occurred. (laughs) This profligate king, this, this user of women and wine, saw something in Esther beyond what he was used to seeing. Every aspiring queen was was given a year's training to prepare her for her one chance at elevation to to be the lady of the land. When her time came, 
She could call on any resource available to try to catch the king. The text says, Esther asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, I'll just be honest, I really don't have any idea how to read that. And since we're G-rated here this morning, we'll leave it at that, other than to say that Esther entered the king's chamber without guile. She was apparently not trying to snare the man. If, the, if Esther's Hebrew name, Hadassah, truly does represent righteousness, maybe, maybe her name's character was evident in her demeanor. She bowed willingly before her sovereign and gave what her new culture demanded in her role as a member of the king's harem. This is a hard thing, is it not? Yet there is no censure. There is not a hint of anything towards in the text or the understanding of the history of the story throughout the centuries, but respect towards Esther for her willingness to be herself in the presence of something absolutely beyond her control. There was no appeal, submission, or death. Yet she submitted in such a way as brought not only credit to herself, but genuine love from this flesh-hungry despot. The text says the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashtar. Listen, this is the best of all possible outcomes. She was prized and legitimized. She's now the lady of the land. But this new lady of the land was still in a very tenuous position. I mean, she had to remember Vashti, who preceded her, right? One angry word from her, one cross thing that happened. And she could lose her crown and position just like the woman who sat in the same seat before her. Then off she would go to Hiram number two. So we leave Esther for a moment in her elevated state. All is well with Esther. Her nationality is still a secret. We assume the king is learning what love is. Esther is adopting her new position. Mordecai must be relieved. Then one day, Mordecai overheard an assassination plot against the king by two men who both had both the power and the access to carry through with that plot. Mordecai told Esther, who told the king in the name of her cousin, you can read about that in the latter part of chapter 2, verse 19 through 23, that the king's life was saved as a result of that piece of intelligence. And Mordecai received official credit for the act in the chronicles of the king. And so now we have a double elevation, speaking literary, literary like I couldn't say that word last time either, literarily, speaking literarily, we have a double elevation. We have Esther elevated the position of queen. We have Mordecai elevated officially. He's already in a position of authority of somewhat, but he's, he's elevated again to, 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 to now receive the, the accolade for this, this great act that he did in saving the life of the king. Then we get the plot. A man named Haman is elevated as the king's number two man. No problem there, right? Until the king issues an edict demanding that all bow to Haman. In chapter 3, we arrive at the first hint of religious or religious thought. Mordecai refused to bow. Haman insisted, but Mordecai remained intractable. He would not 
bow. Why? The only statement is this, chapter 3, verse 4. And when they spoke to Mordecai day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. That's it. Unspoken was this principle, Jews both bow for nobody. Why? No explanation in the text. Well, Haman didn't like that answer at all. Haman was filled with fury, the text says. Haman then sets out to accomplish mass genocide. That's how angry he was. He doesn't go after Mordecai. He goes after all of Mordecai's people. He wants to eliminate all of those people who he believes don't belong in that neat little world he'd like to create where all the people look and think like him. So he sets up a trap. He goes to the king and creates a broad brush condemnation of a whole people group. And he paints the image in such a way that he persuades the king to grant him the authority to accomplish the destruction of all the Jewish people. Now there's a law on the book. And this law cannot be changed. The king signed it. And Medo-Persian laws could not be reversed. That was one of the laws about the laws. After the king was tricked into this decree, all Jews would be slaughtered on a certain set day. Mordecai and all the Jews entered into a period of mourning, and Esther heard about it. She heard about the mourning. She didn't know what was going on. She was isolated in this. Through messengers, she learned from her cousin what's going on. The information came with a command. A command from Mordecai. Go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on our behalf, on the behalf of our people. Consider the situation. Listen, years have passed. We sometimes forget that when we're reading the narratives of Scripture. Years have passed. It's not like this is all compressed into the storybook version you heard in Sunday school. She's left the, the, the life of the little girl of Mordecai far behind. She's probably not seen him in person up close for years. All this, all this conversation has to be done through messengers. Now her cousin commands her to beg the king for the life of a people she's never even admitted that she was part of. Listen to her response. Verse 11 of chapter 4. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if a man or a woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been a month. Mordecai responds, verse 13, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Another glimmer of faith. Relief and deliverance will rise from another place. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The fear was real, guys. Put yourself in Esther's shoes for a minute. What would you be thinking and feeling in those moments? Listen to her response. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Get the whole city together. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women also will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. 
though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Three days later, she goes to the king. He extends the scepter and grants her the right to speak. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet in her quarters. Now, I just wonder, I just wonder, was that her intent? Or did she get cold feet when she actually walked in there? Well, they accept the invitation. At the feast, the king could tell that something was up and says, in effect, I'll give you anything. What do you really want? Why am I here? Her response, you and Haman come to another feast tomorrow. Now, Haman was thrilled. Two days in a row, he was singled out for a great favor from the lady of the land. So thrilled that he lost his mind. He went from a, a great high to a wrathful low. He walks out of the palace on cloud nine and he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, of course, what does he do? He refuses to bow. That night, under the advice of the family and friend who saw how hot and bothered he was, they, they, he, he ordered a massive gallows built with the intent of asking the king for permission to just hang Mordecai tomorrow. Then the great reversal. That night, the king couldn't sleep. Instead of counting sheep, he asked for a reading of the memorable deeds of his own kingdom. And by seeming chance, the scribe read of Mordecai's foiling of the assassination attempt that had happened years prior. What honor and distinction have we done for this man? Crickets. No response. Nothing had been done. By this time, morning had come, and the king looks to his aide and says, What officials have arrived today for work? Haman. The king asked Haman to come before him. Before Haman could ask for permission to hang Mordecai from the gallows that he had just built, the king looks at him and says, What should be done for the man in whom I delight to honor? Haman thought, Well, he must be talking about me. So, so he came up with the best possible plan that he could think of to honor himself, and he told it to the king. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden on the horse on whose head the royal crown is set and let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king loved his plan. He said to Haman, hurry up, take the robes, get the horse and do as you have said. Go get Mordecai, put him on the horse, give him all that stuff and lead him out, and you're the, you're the official that gets to holler that before him. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So here's Haman, leading Mordecai in the king's robe. After that, Haman went home in fear, rightful fear, right? He could see the handwriting on the wall, perhaps. But he still had that appointment he had to go to. So off the terror-stricken Haman goes to Esther's feet. Perhaps he thinks, at least the invitation is still on. Well, Esther's cold feet have warmed. At the banquet, the king asks her yet again, what's really up? What do you really want? I'll grant you your request, even if it's up to a third of the kingdom. I mean, half of, my, half of the kingdom. With that nearly blank check in her hand, offered for the third time, she fills it out. Chapter 7, verse number 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of a king. After he picks his jaw up off the floor, Xerxes says, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther says, A foe and an enemy, that wicked Haman. The king rises in a rage and leaves. Haman begs for his life to Esther. This backfires because the the king walks back in to see Haman pawing at his wife, which he takes to be an attempted assault. The king finds out there's a gallows that Haman built for Mordecai and orders him to be taken away, and so ends Haman. But there's a little matter left, is there not? The law of the Persians can't be changed, even by the king. So there's still a law on the books. The law of the Persians can't be changed. Even, and, and, and so, so the, 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 the law that allows, permits, and encourages, even with money and resources, the destruction of all Jews on that certain day in the future. So Xerxes elevates Mordecai to Haman's former position and tells him to fix it. Come up with a counter law. And so here's what Mordecai comes up with. On the same day of their impending slaughter, the Jews, in the name of the king, were to be armed with the royal arms, with the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people that might attack them. And the Jews were given the right of plunder, another reversal. Such a strong reversal that the text says that many non-Jews throughout the 127 provinces of Xerxes' reign declared themselves to be Jews. The Jews, armed by the Persian overlords, overcame their enemies. Battles throughout the empire on that day. Throughout the empire from Ethiopia all the way to India, the text says 75,000 people armed themselves against the Jews and 75,000 people fell at the Jews' hands. But the Jews did not exercise their right to plunder. And so began the Feast of Purim. The celebration of deliverance still celebrated today. Great story, huh? So what? Now we got a feast, a national holiday. Listen, there's something you've got to note. The whole, the whole book of Esther, 10 chapters, there's no mention of God. No explicit mention of any of the elements that we expect to read in Scripture. No injunction to trust God. Nothing but the sound of silence on any explicit matter of faith. What we've got is a man and a woman who live their lives in a constant tension of compromising circumstances. Day after day, year after year, all with no mention of God. Folks, that's intentional. You're supposed to notice that. No accident there. Listen, every day, you're called to live inside of a secular system. Many of you, as I looked around the room when we stood, dedicated years of your life to support and defend that system. A republic modeled after an improved, failed Roman order. Now, if you've not said it yet, perhaps you will. Just looking around at society, where is God? That's the question I heard most often from people after 9-11 when I was pastoring in Arizona. Where's God? Where's God when tragedy strikes? Where's God when you're snatched from comfort and thrust into situations outside of your control? 
Where is God when you get word from the doctor? When he describes a 25-letter word that you've never heard of that just became your diagnosis and tells you that the prognosis is not good? Where is God when you're enslaved and, and treated like something rather than somebody? Where is God when the innocent suffer? Where is God when there's no Esther or Mordecai to save you? Where is God? The Mester, the message of Esther. He's right there. Where is God? He's right there. You can't see Him. Perhaps you don't feel Him. Perhaps you may even refuse to acknowledge Him. But He is right there. Your Father is good. You may perish, but He is there. You may be elevated. Guess what? He's still there. Here's your choice. Be an agent for the King of Kings. Or you can keep your mouth shut and let God use someone else. Use subtlety, sure. It may take you two banquets before you open your mouth and say what the Spirit is leading you to say, but you've got that choice. Listen, God seldom shows up in a burning bush or a pillar of fire or, or even in an audible voice. His normal mode of incarnation, you and me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That was then. Now the Word becomes flesh in you and I as we live in our pagan world, letting Christ's light shine, being His hands and feet, offering our cold cup of water to those in need and being willing to obey His commands. Where is God? He is in you, His children. What will you do to change your world for Christ? What haven't you said or done that you know that He's leading you to say or do? It's time. In the words of Mordecai, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I'll say it, you didn't retire here to retire. You didn't open a business here to make money. You don't clock in and out at your job just to do your job. And for my military brethren, God's name wasn't written on your orders, but it might just as well have been. You're not here in this community as a retiree, a worker bee, or a leader of an organization by accident. Where is God? He is right here. Let your light so shine that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And we ask that you would let our light shine, that nothing would hinder. And it's in Jesus' most precious name we pray these things. Amen.